Well, good morning. I want to uh, express my heartfelt thanks to this church for the kindness, many kindnesses shown to my family. Uh, around the celebration of my daughter's wedding, many of you were of uh, great help to us in that, especially the uh, party crashers at the reception who were wearing black pants and white shirts. A whole bunch of you crashed our reception and served us beautifully, and I'm deeply, deeply thankful for that. And it's just another reminder to me of why it is that I love our church so and consider myself richly blessed by God to have, um, to have this be the place where my family gathers for worship. I really do. I, I love these times together on Sundays, and there's nowhere I would rather uh, gather for worship than here with you. And the question that that raises for me sometimes is, uh, you know, I love this. I assume you do or you wouldn't be here. But sometimes I wonder, what does God think about it all? What, what does he think about these gatherings? Is he as happy with them as, as I am? And there's so many things uh, you start thinking about that, that that we process and try to sort out whether they are God-honoring. It's, there's, there's the music part and the teaching, uh, the preparation of our hearts, the the lives that we've lived all week long that we bring and offer to him in worship. And of course, then there's that all-important question that we dare not forget. Are the women's heads covered? Um, I'm not kidding. We've got about half a chapter in 1 Corinthians that's devoted to that subject. Let me read it to you. We're going to talk about it this morning by the providence of God. Um, I praise you for remembering me in everything, Paul says, and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's, it's just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, We have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So there you have it. About a half of a chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians devoted to the question of whether or not women should wear head coverings or have their heads covered in some form or fashion. Um, Kind of peripherally, should the men's be covered? Guys, you might want to stash those ball caps 
Um, is that appropriate for worship? Um, this, is, this was a question that Paul thought of such importance in the, in the first century to the church at Corinth that he's willing to take all this length to convince the women that they needed to cover their heads in worship. Um, the questions for us today will be, of course, what was going on there, but also, what's it mean for us? Does this have application for us? Um, how, do we, how do we apply it if we do? And I, I want you to know up front, this is an extraordinarily difficult passage. Almost every verse is very difficult to interpret, and the application is extraordinarily challenging. Um, one of the commentators I read this week is a fellow named Craig Blomberg. He was one of Mark Lederbach's instructors in seminary. He's uh, extraordinarily smart. He says, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. N.T. Wright, who's one of the brightest theological minds around today, and he's, he's from England, he's thinking back to when he first taught this passage, and he says... Um, Now, I have to admit that I didn't understand this passage then, and I'm not sure I understand it yet. It is really going to challenge us. Um, It's been a challenge for me as I've worked through it. It's going to be a challenge for you today as you try to wrap your mind around it and then think about what you need to do with it. So let's just pause and pray and ask God's favor on this time together as we get ready for this, okay? God, it's good for us to bow before you. It reminds us that we are not you and that we need you in so many ways. And today, uh, perhaps more obviously than most, we need you to help us understand the life you are calling us to live to bring you glory. Um, We'll miss it if you don't help us. So, God, I pray for ears to hear, hearts to obey. And may my words serve your good purposes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, what's going on in Corinth that prompted all of this? It appears that there were women in the church who were at least considering, if not actually rejecting, this symbol of a covered head when they prayed or prophesied when the church gathered together. By that rejection, it appears that they were intentionally disregarding their unique role as women in the body of Christ, especially in the gathered church. And as you've already heard read, Paul tells the women, put the coverings back on. So the questions before us are things like, why did Paul require this? How does this relate to us today? Should there be a run on ladies' hats at Kohl's? later this afternoon, okay? Those are the questions, kinds of questions we're going to try to walk through. Um, this, is, this is not Paul's most strident debate with the Corinthians in this letter. There are other things he's more passionate about. The language kind of is softer and things like that. But at the same time, he's going to stack up not one, not two, but five arguments for why women need to have their head covered in these scenarios. So let's walk through those five arguments one by one. And we'll start with uh, the, right out of the box in verse 3. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. 
Head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul, by their embracing of this symbol of a head covering of some sort, he is urging them to reflect and to protect the teaching about spiritual headship. And this idea that something is ahead is a very rich but widely disputed uh, image that goes on in, in the Bible. It can mean different things. It, ahead can be the source of something, like the snow-capped mountains are the head of the mountain streams that flow down. They're the source of those streams. It can also mean authority, like the general is the head of his army. He's the authority over his army. Um, and scholars hold to different of those two meanings, and they are spilling lots of ink trying to convince one the other that it's either source or it's authority. It's source or it's authority in these situations. And some of the times I feel like we're trying to make enemies out of good friends because you find both of those meanings in Paul. Um, in the book of Ephesians, for instance, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's, that sounds like authority. But you drop a couple chapters more in Ephesians 4, and he says, instead of speaking, instead speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's, that's the head kind of as more of as source, it sounds like. So both ideas are present in Paul's writing elsewhere, it seems. And those ideas of source and authority are both in our text. Source in verses 8 and 9 and authority in verse 10, though it does not use this same uh, precise language. But to be honest with you, many scholars come to this text contending earnestly that this can't have anything to do with authority. There's no authority in this idea of headship. And, you know, as, as best as I've wrestled with it this week, to me, the insistence that head cannot mean authority in this text tends to neuter it of what Paul's lead theological point is. And I can't imagine Paul writing this much about it unless authority were part of it. See, I think headship is a spiritual reality that's grounded in the very nature of God himself. It flows out of the relationships within the Godhead, within the Trinity, the way the Father relates to the Son and the Son to the Spirit. And it's to be reflected in the church in the relationship amongst men and women, especially in marriage. So today, mostly I'm going to be applying this to men and women in marriage. Matter of fact, some of your Bibles go so far as rather than translating in this passage man and woman, it'll say husband and wife because that's the primary arena in which it, um, which it plays out. But this headship flows from the Godhead into the church. Christ is the head of man, it says. Man, the head of woman. God, the head of Christ. This is a spiritual reality within the Godhead that is to be reflected in the gender roles within the church. 
So for our worship to be appropriately acceptable to God, we have to reflect God rightly. And this headship idea in our relationships as men and women, as husbands and wives, is intended to reflect a reality that's existing, especially between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. So guys, this is another reason for you to study theology. If you understand the Trinity, you have a shot at understanding your wife. Okay? The latter of which may be far more complicated. So that's one of the reasons we teach these kinds of doctrines in our classes. They're hard to get your hands around. But they are intended to shape us. Okay? Um, especially our relationships as men and women within the church and the family. So the symbol of a woman's head cover reflects this teaching of headship, and it honors her spiritual head, Paul says. In verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. His head is Christ in that reference. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. That would be her husband, the man. It's just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. So this symbol reflects the spiritual headship. Reject the symbol and you dishonor your spiritual head. So to be honest, as we look at this, we don't know exactly what this symbol of a head covering was. The Bible doesn't come with pictures. Okay? There's no marginal note in your Bible. This was the head covering they were talking about. Some think it was some kind of a shawl or perhaps a veil. Some think it was actually the length of hair, that the long hair, as we'll see a few verses later, served as a covering. Some people think it was long hair worn up, kind of in an updo that that was uh, what they're talking about here. No pictures, we don't know. And that's part of the conundrum that we're uh, dealing with here. Um, But the central idea seems to me to be one of humbly placing oneself under God's authority and reflecting that in this symbol. But we don't only know for sure what that symbol was. We don't know why that symbol fit so well. Um, Some have said that short hair was the style of immoral women in the day. Some have said that long hair worn down was the style of immoral women in the day. Some people say that um, when men covered their head, it was representative of some of the... um, false gods that were worshipped and required that of men. Some say men with long hair. Uh, that, that represented that they were homosexual. We don't know. Okay, we, we simply aren't able to peer back with precision into this ancient culture and figure out exactly why this was a good symbol or exactly what the symbol was. But what seems to be very clear here is that to deny the unique roles that God gives to men and women in worship um, is to improperly then reflect God's own glory back to him in worship. If we deny the spiritual reality of headship, we can't reflect God rightly in our worship, and that dishonors him. Our worship then is not pleasing to him. And Paul says we disgrace ourselves when we fall out of these appropriate 
um, practices. So it's vital for us to be able to worship God in ways that please him, that we embrace the distinctives in the church of men and women and their roles. This pleases God and brings us no shame. So um, this is why uh, men and women are so complementary in the church. It's why we don't plant all-male churches. We don't have our men's ministry plant churches and our women's ministry plant churches. Um, it's, it's an insufficient expression of the glory of God. Both genders uniquely reflect God's glory in this matter of headship. Um, this is Paul's lead reason in all of these things. It reflects headship. The roles of loving authority and humble, gracious submission to that authority that we see in God himself. As the Father sends the Son, and the Son willingly, lovingly honors the Father. Paul's going to talk about this in, later on in 1 Corinthians. In, in chapter 15, he describes how the Son, though equal with the Father, is in submission to the Father. He says in, verse, in chapter 15, Then the end will come when he, the Son, hands over the, king, the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, God the Father, that is, who puts everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Do you hear all the language of the Son gladly submitting to the Father? And yet we know that the Son is just as much God as the Father is. So, as we embrace our distinctive roles as men and women in worship, we reflect the headship that's present within the Godhead, especially between the Father and Son. And this is worship that pleases God as it reflects Him rightly. Okay. Now, this is Paul's lead argument, but he's just getting started. Okay? He's got five of these. Here's the second one, starting in verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman's the glory of man. For man did not come from woman. He's referring back to the original creation now. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Okay, Eve was made from Adam. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for, for man. Eve for Adam. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So Paul is now saying, another reason for these coverings is the order and purpose of creation are reflected in the coverings of women's head as they worship. The covered head of women in worship reflects the distinct role and order of men and women in creation. The man is to uniquely give glory to God by the symbol of an uncovered head, while the woman is to uniquely give glory to the man who is her divinely appointed spiritual head by her covered head. And this reflects the order and the wonder and the beauty of creation, where woman was created from and for man, not vice versa. Okay. Now, 
all of this can begin to sound rather demeaning. Okay? The woman submits to the man. She's made for the man. Here we go. Second class. Um, that cannot be the meaning here. There cannot be even a hint of inferiority in any way. This is not a hierarchy of worth. It is a difference in function because Christ submits to the Father, but yet is equally God with the Father. And yet the Son does gladly submit. Jesus talks about it um, in a number of cases. In John 8, Jesus says, The one who sent me, the Father, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. The Son is speaking of the Father. Jesus said to him, if, I, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but the Father sent me. In John 10, Jesus says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So you hear all this language of the Son gladly submitting to the Father. It's part of the way the Godhead works. And we reflect this when we embrace our unique, distinct roles as men and women. Women do have a role marked by submission and bringing honor to their husbands. But it is not an inferior role. Paul is eager to protect about this. So in verses 11 and 12, he says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We need each other. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. And so he is protecting us from some kind of male superiority and female inferiority. Again, this is not a hierarchy of worth. It's equal value, different roles. In our North Wake statement on the role of women in leading our church, um, our elders say this. They say, in conclusion, the elders of North Wake Church affirm the following three points as faithful to the teaching of Scripture. Men and women are equal in value as image bearers. Two, men and women have been given different roles as image bearers. And three, the roles given to men and women, while different, are of equal value. So Paul is marshalling those first two arguments for reasons that women uniquely should have some kind of covering um, as they lead in worship. Here's his third argument in verse 10. For this reason, the order of creation we already talked about, and because of the angels... The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So the third reason is because of the angels. That's all Paul says, just because of the angels. And uh, some have thought that this might be referring back to what happened to the angels who disregarded God's authority and were... um, banished from God's presence. Uh, Mark Driscoll articulates this. He says, before we make foolish decisions to dishonor God's godly authority, we should look at the example of angels and demons and say, how did it go for them? 
that's probably not what we would want to be, rebellious. So he thinks it's a reminder. Uh, Another example would be that angels are God's servants who watch over creation and protect the worship of his people. They, in particular, would want to see services proceed with appropriate dignity and decorum. So the idea that many embrace is that angels are watching us now. They are watching over our worship. And uh, we want to offer up worship in order as they watch over us. I personally hold to the third view that's espoused by Ligon Duncan. He says, now you ask me, what does that mean? And I tell you, I have no idea. I know it has something to do with continuing Paul's argument, but I have no idea what it is. Ask me in another 10 years and maybe I'll have a good answer. I do not understand. I do not know. Lots of really creative answers out there. Uh, None have surfaced as uh, convincing in my eyes. But here's here's something really, really important. Just because I do not understand this does not mean that I have the right to dismiss it as important. Just because I do not understand it doesn't mean that I have the right to dismiss it. It still is advanced as a legitimate reason why women should be covered when they pray and prophesy in worship. So that's the third reason. A fourth reason um, is from nature in verses 13 to 15. Paul says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. And Paul here is probably just referencing the culture, the prevalent culture of the day. Evidently, men's hair was shorter in that day than women, and for men to have really long hair was in some way, we don't know exactly how, dishonoring to him. And if, if women had long hair, it was a glorious thing. This also is the verse that some will use to argue that long hair is actually the woman's covering. That it's not some external shawl, but it's her long hair. Or perhaps her long hair, again, worn up in some style or another. Um, So, fifth and final reason, last verse of our text today. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, there ain't no other way, Paul says, the churches or the apostles do this, get in line. Okay. Basically, that's his last argument. So of these five reasons, the first three, headship, the order and purpose of creation, and the angels are all theological in nature and would press us to honor this teaching today. Um, so, In light of that, having given you three reasons why this presses on us today, let me give you two reasons why we cannot obey this text today, at least not in the same way that they did. First of all, we don't know exactly what the covering was to put on. We don't know whether it was a shawl or long hair or long hair worn in a certain way or if it was a hoodie. We don't know. So it's hard to do what you can't figure out. Um, I have actually taught this passage before. You'd think I'd have learned, right? When I first came to North Wake, I taught 1 Corinthians. First year I was here, taught 1 Corinthians 11 in the morning service. We still had an evening service. I come to the evening service, 
I don't remember what was going on at that service, but I remember getting up to lead in prayer. I bow my head. I lead the congregation in this beautiful spiritual prayer. I raise my eyes, and there, every woman in the church is wearing Mickey Mouse ears, hats with feathers, uh, you know, goofy-looking things. Every, they had passed them out at the door. Every woman that came in got a crazy-looking hat. So, um, to my knowledge... No woman at North Wake ever wore a hat after that. Um, but it did lead to the dismantling of the evening service, which died a quick death shortly, <laughs> shortly thereafter. So I'm not sure what, if those two were related or how. We don't know what the covering is, so we honestly can't obey it in the same fashion they did. Um, and if we knew what the symbol was, it does not carry the same meaning in our culture today that it did then. Uh, Dan Wallace uh, has written about this. It's very helpful. I'll share it with you. He says, The important thing to note is that the early church adopted a convention likely already in use in society and gave it a distinctively Christian hue. He says that Paul could say no other churches had any other practice may well indicate how easily such a practice could be adopted. The early church practice of requiring the women to wear a head covering when praying or prophesying would not have been viewed as an unusual request. In the cosmopolitan cities of Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, no one would feel out of place. Head coverings were everywhere. But he says, today, however, the situation is quite different, at least in the West. For a woman to wear a head covering would seem to be a distinctively humiliating experience. Many women uh, resist the notion of wearing head coverings precisely because they feel awkward and self-conscious about it. But the head covering in Paul's day was intended only to display the woman's submission or subordination, not her humiliation. So today, ironically, to require a head covering for women in the worship service would be tantamount to asking them to shave their heads. The effect, therefore, would be just the opposite of what Paul intended. So... What do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply it today? Um, let me talk to the men first. The passage really isn't mostly about us. We are kind of in it as a backdrop to, the, to an issue that the ladies were wrestling with in Corinth in the first century. But there is the direct, crystal clear teaching, men, that Christ is your head and you'd best not dishonor him. And you do that when you cover your head and worship like a woman. That is, when you, stopped reflect, when you stop reflecting the glory of Christ as your head, as you fail to act both as a man under Christ's authority and one given authority to exercise over your wife in like manner. You are a man under Christ's authority. He is your Lord. You are expected to obey him. In love, he died for you as your head to make you the head of your church and your home. You are a man under authority, not a rebel. Honor him by your submission. So now you are to bear the authority Christ has given you as a husband or an elder in the church with the same sacrificial loving care for those that he has placed under your authority. 
How you do this will determine whether or not you honor your head, who is Christ himself, or whether or not you will one day experience shame before him. Men, will you lead like Christ, humbly, sacrificially, lovingly? As a man given this sacred responsibility, you had better be a man running hard after God. You better know the scriptures. You better know the core truths about God. Yes, you need a rudimentary knowledge of theology. You better know how to pray. You better know how to really pray. And you better be doing it. Paul applies this teaching um, with a slant towards men in Ephesians 5 when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. The exercise of your loving headship, men, over your wife ought to be making her more holy. Is it? Is your wife more holy more blameless, fighting temptation better because she married you. So, what might be a good symbol as an uncovered head for a husband? I don't think that whether or not you wear a baseball cap to worship is the deal. Let me suggest something better, more heart-centered. Faithfully earnestly leading your family to worship. Listen to this challenge from John Piper. Men, you should feel the greater responsibility in a marriage to take the lead in the things of the Spirit. You should lead the family in a life of prayer, in the study of God's Word, and in worship. You should lead out in giving the family a vision of its meaning and mission. You should take the lead in shaping the moral fabric of the home and in governing its happy peace. I have never met a woman, he says, who chafes under such Christ-like leadership. But I know of too many wives who are unhappy because their husbands have abdicated their God-ordained leadership and have no moral vision, no spiritual conception of what a family is for, and therefore no desire to lead anyone anywhere. Where a man belongs is at the bedside of his children, leading in devotion and prayer. Where a man belongs is leading his family to the house of God. Where a man belongs is up early and alone with God, seeking vision and direction for his family. So hats off, brothers. You are men under authority who have been given authority. Let's help each other with this. Let's encourage each other in this. Let's support each other in this. And if you're struggling this, find someone who's succeeding with it and get some help. Now a word to the ladies about what to do about these head coverings. First of all, I don't think you can just write it off as irrelevant Headship and creation and the angels are all pressing you today to do something with this. And uh, 
I am not about to decree that you don some kind of hat every time you come to worship. I've seen that happen at North Wake. I'm not sure it's a particularly worshipful thing to have happen. Um, But having said that, if as you sort this out, you believe that some kind of external head covering, be it a shawl or whatever, then, um, you know, you go, girl. Uh, Wear that thing, all right? Um, God will be pleased with your spirit that is driving that, and we will honor that effort and that, that symbol here at North Wake. I just can't prescribe with any authority for you what that ought to look like. You know. Now, there's one thing that I will point out to you, though, about this requirement, especially if you select some kind of external symbol. To wear. In verse 5, Paul says that it's every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered who dishonors her head. That it isn't it's specifically in matters of prayer and prophecy in the assembled church, which has the idea of women participating publicly in the leadership of the gathering in some way. For instance, if you were to come to one of our Sunday night prayer groups and stand to your feet and lead in prayer, that might be a scenario where you would want this symbol in place. If you were to be called upon to read scripture on Sunday morning here or to give a testimony during our worship services on Sunday morning, that would be a time. I do not think that it would be incumbent upon you to wear it every time you darken the door of the worship service. Um, So, Uh, Dan Wallace makes an interesting suggestion for those of you who are thinking about external symbols. Um, He says, what other symbols are available in our culture? At the present time, he says, I emphasize the tentative nature of my position. I think, and this is just his suggestion, but I throw it out for fodder. I think the wearing, he says, of a modest dress is an appropriate symbol. It does not pick up every correspondence in the passage, but it does do justice to many. In particular, and this is most important, a woman who wears a provocative dress or who pushes the boundaries of propriety in the other direction, she wears guy's clothes, is often not showing proper submission in her attitude. And he says the symbol thus corresponds um, well to this passage. So, are hats and dresses now the requirement at Northwake? Um, I, I, I just, I cannot say that for you. I cannot decree that for you. Um, I want you to think and wrestle with those. Tom Constable says something that I think is worth hearing in his commentary. He says, Today, no item of clothing consistently identifies a woman's acceptance or rejection of her role in God's administrative order. At least none does in Western culture. It is usually her speech and her behavior that do. The important thing is her attitude towards her womanhood and how she expresses it, not whether she wears a particular item of clothing. So the attitude is the most important thing towards your unique role in the church and worship as a woman. If I was going to say that there was going to be some kind of symbol with respect to dress, I would suggest that a a modest femininity in what you wear would be a good working direction. 
as modesty and femininity both can convey a glad submission as well as a cherishing of your role as a woman in a Christ-honoring way. Um, as I tread where angels dare not tread, um, uh, modesty is so good and beautiful in our worship services, ladies. It is so good and beautiful, I commend it to you heartily. It would behoove you as a service to your brothers who delight in undistracted worship of our King and the teaching of this passage where modesty reflects your glad submission to the authority God's placed over you, that you would ask yourself the question in front of the mirror before you come to church, is this too low? Is this too short? And is this too tight? Um, Honestly, some of the things that are expected of you to wear in our culture, they must have to pour you into it and spatula you out of it. It is entirely possible for something to be too tight. If every contour is on display by what you wear, no matter how high the neckline or low low the hemline, you have missed modesty. Um, Modesty is protected by some element of mystery. And if every contour is available, you've missed it. So um, I am not going to say any more about that. But you think about that. Constable's quote really gets at the heart of the matter. The important thing is her attitude towards her womanhood. Are you cherishing, delighting in, and desiring to reflect your unique ability to worship God as a woman, as his daughter? Are you entrusting submission to the man God has placed over you as your head. And I know that that can really be tough when you are smarter, prettier, and more talented than the goober that you are charged with submitting to. Husbands, you can speak to your wife about that laughter after the service. Um, let me, ladies, let me encourage you with a quote, a closing quote from Ligon Duncan, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let us be dismissed. He says, man is the head of woman, God is the head of Christ. So woman is called upon to engage in this very difficult task of submitting to the spiritual guidance and leadership and showing respect to a fallible, goofy human male. How do you do that? Well, it says that Jesus himself has submitted himself to the Father. That's your paradigm. And the woman says, "Uh uh-huh, I see a fallacy in that argument. Jesus gets to submit to the glorious God, the Father. I get Bozo the Clown over here. And then he says, and then you remember what Isaiah 53 says of the Father in his relationship to the Son, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, a reference to the crucifixion. And then you see Jesus in the garden saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And suddenly, 
you realize that Jesus' submission in the great covenant of redemption was the most difficult submission ever attempted and accomplished by a human being. So my sisters here at Northway Church, may Christ be pleased with your worship as you humbly honor your head. Let's pray together. Father, I do love this church. And I um, am so encouraged by the humble, submissive spirit of my sisters. Um, I thank you for that. And I pray that their tribe would increase, that the young women in our church would grow up under their tutelage and example, and they would taste of the joy of knowing that their worship is acceptable because they cherish their role, their Christ-like role of humble, glad, trusting submission. And Lord, I pray for wisdom for my sisters as they think about this, as they sort this out later today and this week and even beyond as they wrestle with what does it mean for them to honor you in what you have taught in this text. May you give them wisdom and discernment and great joy in their obedience. Faithfulness too. And Lord, I pray for my brothers that we too would be following Christ well in the matters we've been charged with today. That our headship would look ever increasingly like his. That together with our sisters, we might worship you rightly here reflect you well, and you might be pleased with it all. We pray this in Jesus' name, our head. Amen.